Turn your Bibles to Luke chapter 17 this morning. Luke chapter 17. I've not heard that song since the funeral of Nicola Bowers. And uh, when I heard it last, it was me and Paul Brace and Brother Kerry singing it. And I believe I like hearing them sing it better. Amen. And uh, that was a blessing. I appreciate that good song. Well, I appreciate your prayers. Me and my family, we enjoyed just a little bit of time away this week. We did you all a favor, went over and checked, and made sure the mountains of North Carolina are still there. I'm happy to report they are. Amen. So you can rest your mind at ease. Luke chapter number 17. And I've got just a simple message this morning. And I, I, I hope the Lord will bless it. I trust that he will. He can't bless me very often, but he can bless his word. Amen. Luke chapter 17, I'd like to begin reading at verse 3. Luke chapter 17, verse number 3. The Lord Jesus, speaking to his apostles, said this, Take heed to yourselves. If thy brother trespass against thee, rebuke him. And if he repent, forgive him. And if he trespass against thee seven times in a day, and seven times in a day turn again to thee, saying, I repent, thou shalt forgive him. And the apostles said unto the Lord, increase our faith. And the Lord said, if ye had faith as a grain of mustard seed, ye might say unto this sycamine tree, be thou plucked up by the root, be thou planted in the sea, and it should obey you. But which of you, having a servant plowing or feeding cattle, will say unto him by and by when he has come from the field, go and sit down to meat? And will not rather say unto him, Make ready there wherewith I may sup, and gird thyself, and serve me, till I have eaten and drunken. And afterward thou shalt eat and drink. Doth he thank that servant, because he did the things that were commanded him? I trow not. So likewise ye, when ye shall have done all those things which are commanded you, say, We are unprofitable servants. We have done that which was our duty to do. Let's pray together. Father, we love you this morning. Thank you for the house of God. Thank you for the people of God, for the word of God and the spirit of God. Lord, thank you most of all for the son of God who gave his life a ransom that I might be purchased unto his bosom and unto his family. Lord, I pray that you'd take now the word of God, use it effectively and efficiently. Lord, I pray that it would give honor and glory unto you today. May I please you in what's said. Lord, I want to help them and bless them. But above all, Lord, help me to please you today and to honor you in all that's said and done. Lord, we love you. We ask it in Christ's name. Amen. You know, this passage begins in sort of a a funny and endearing way. The Lord Jesus commands his disciples in verse number three. He says, take heed to yourselves. If thy brother trespass against thee, rebuke him. And if he repent, forgive him. Now, that's pretty simple. Most of us would probably agree with that counsel, wouldn't we? If somebody's got a problem and we go to them and try to make it right, show them where they've wronged us and try to set things right, most of us would agree with that. But then the Lord Jesus goes beyond that. And he says in verse 4, If he trespass against thee seven times in a day, and seven times in a day turn again to thee, saying, I repent, he says, Thou shalt forgive him. And the apostles said unto the Lord, just like you'd say and just like I'd say if we heard that that had been placed upon our shoulders and within the realm of our responsibility, they said, now, Lord, uh, to forgive him once, I maybe can do that in the flesh. But if I'm going to forgive him that many times, Lord, I'm going to need faith to forgive him in that manner. Let me make one passing comment before we get into preaching. Notice that first phrase in verse three. 
Notice that he said, take heed to yourselves. I don't know about you, but most of the time, when I refuse to forgive someone, it's because I'm worried about them, not because I'm worried about me. I'm worried about whether they're going to behave. I'm worried about whether they're going to keep their word. And then when some folks come to you and they've wronged you time and again, and and you say, you know, I want to forgive them in the grace of God, but I'm scared to forgive them because they're just going to turn around and hurt me again. Can I remind you in the matter of forgiveness, it ain't them you got to watch out for. It's you you got to watch out for. We don't forgive them because they deserve it. We forgive them because God deserves it. We don't forgive them because it'll fix them. We forgive them because we're faithful. We don't forgive them because it's good for them. We forgive them because it's good for us and it glorifies God. And so the Lord Jesus gives very clear instructions in this passage. But I am struck by the response of the apostles in verse number 5. They say, Lord, what you've asked of us is too much. What you've asked of us is beyond what any man could expect. Lord, what you've asked of us will require a special dispensation of faith to accomplish. The Lord then gives a reply in verse number 6. He said, if ye had faith, they said, increase our faith. He said, you ain't got no faith. He said, if ye had faith as a grain of mustard seed, you might say unto this sycamine tree, be thou plucked up by the root, And be thou planted by the sea, and it should obey you. Now, when we come to verse number 7, if I'm being honest with you, I'd be tempted to think a couple of pages of my Bible got stuck together and I moved to a new chapter. Because when the Lord replies in verse number 7, if I'm being frank on the face of it, it almost seems to have nothing to do with what He's been talking about. He told them to forgive. They said, we need faith. He said, you don't have any faith, but if you did, you could do incredible things. And then in verse 7, he begins to give an illustration regarding servanthood and stewardship. He says, which of you, having a servant, plowing or feeding cattle, will say unto him by and by when he has come from the field, go and sit down to meet, and will not rather say unto him, make ready wherewith I may sup? And gird thyself and serve me till I have eaten and drunken. And afterward thou shalt eat and drink. Doth he thank that servant because he did the things that were commanded him? He says, I trow not. I like that King James Bible word. I trow not. For a lot of years people would say, well, I don't know that word. Well, learn that word. A lot of words you don't know. A lot of words your mama never taught you, but you learned them along the way. You can learn a good King James Bible word. It means I think not. I trow not. So likewise ye, when ye have done all those things which are commanded you, say, we are unprofitable servants. We have done that which was our duty to do. I want to preach to you on this thought this morning. We are unprofitable servants. Now, I've asked the Lord to help me to give it in the right spirit because you could easily misunderstand what I'm preaching this morning. I didn't say you are unprofitable servants. I said we are unprofitable servants. What the Lord Jesus is seeking to do in this passage is to adjust their perspective on their roles and responsibilities as the servants of God. I don't know if you're aware of this, but when you got born again, you became a servant of God. You didn't have, there wasn't no sign-up sheet on the back table. There wasn't no meeting after the service. You got born again and you got enlisted into the, into the office of being a servant of the Lord Jesus Christ. And very often as we live our lives, if I'm being frank, 
we lose sight of what it means to be a servant. When we come to this passage of Scripture, there's some things that are wrong. You say, what do you mean, preacher? Well, the apostles' perspective is wrong. Their idea of what's been asked of them is wrong. And their idea of their relationship to their master is all wrong. You know, a lot of what's broken about Christianity is we've got some of those things wrong. We've lost sight of who and what we are. We've lost sight of what is our duty to do. We've lost sight of what is the worth that we give God. We've lost sight of what is our role in the plan of God. And I believe this morning, with the Lord's help, maybe we can get a right perspective on what it means to be a servant. Notice three things with me and I'll be done this morning. Notice the first thing the Lord deals with is what is possible in serving God. It begins with a request in verse number 5. And notice the substance of their request. The apostles said unto the Lord, increase our faith. I don't know about you, but that's probably better than 80% of the prayers I've ever prayed. There's nothing wrong with what they asked for. In fact, we could note two things about what they asked. Number one, it was natural to ask this. Remember the context here. The Lord has said, if your brother comes up and slaps you right across the jaw and turns around and says, I'm sorry, please forgive me, then you ought to forgive him. If he comes and slaps your jaw seven or eight times and says, please forgive me, then you ought to forgive him. And the disciples responding, I think, in a natural way say, Lord, that's too much to ask of us. If you're going to ask us to forgive those that have wronged us in such a brazen way, then we are going to need more faith to do that. Can I say to you this morning, it does take faith to serve God. It does take faith. Somewhere along the line, we've lost sight of the fact that this thing, we walk by faith and not by sight. And man, we get all twisted up when God puts us in a situation that we can't see a clear solution to. You understand that faith is built for situations that you can't see a clear solution to. That's literally what it's designed for. I mean, you understand, if you're never in that situation, you don't need faith. If you're never in a situation that you don't have a solution, you don't have a plan, you don't know what will happen, you've just got to put it in God's hands and trust that He knows what's best. If you're never put in that situation, you'll never need faith. And I'd say this, there's a lot of times that the only people we're willing to forgive are those that it takes no faith to forgive them. I don't know which message I'm preaching this morning, so whatever comes out, you blame that on the Lord. But can I just say this? Hey, forgiveness is a matter of faith. And it's not a matter of faith in that person. It's a matter of faith in the Lord. It takes faith to forgive people. It takes faith. You say, preacher, am I trusting they're never going to hurt me again? Well, that'd probably be naive. Uh, Chances are they probably will hurt you again. Hey, listen, I've probably hurt you before. I'll probably hurt you again. Uh, The people that love you deeply and love you the most in life, they'll probably hurt you again. If your criteria for forgiving people is an ironclad agreement guaranteed, signed on the dotted line contract that they'll never hurt you again, I'm sorry, you ain't never going to forgive anybody. Not unless you're willing to accept their lies will you ever forgive someone. Because nobody can guarantee that they're never going to hurt you again. It's a matter of faith, but not faith in that person, as is always the case in regards to the walk of the believer with God. It's about it's a matter of faith in God. Saying, Lord, I, I believe it's better for me to forgive. Lord, I believe it's righteous to forgive. Lord, I believe it glorifies you to forgive. And so when we come to this passage, I just let me give them a little bit of credit here. What they ask is a natural thing. And I would say we certainly need to seek faith in the pursuit of serving God. It was a natural thing. Let me say number two, it was a noble thing. They could have said, Lord, strike them down. 
But instead they said, Lord, increase our faith. They could have said, Lord, make it to where I never have to deal with them again. But instead they said, Lord, increase our faith. I said a moment ago, I'll say it again. This is better than 80% of the prayers I've prayed. Sometimes I look back on some of the things and look through prayer journals and look through uh, my memories and, and, and think about some of the things I've asked God for. And some of them are silly. You know, I'm glad God's gracious enough even to answer silly prayers sometimes. And sometimes I look at the things that I thought I had figured out and the things that I thought I needed and that I thought I knew were best for me and that I begged God for that He refused because He knows more than I know. And I think to myself, my soul, I've wasted a lot of time praying over things that I should have just left to God's care. But can I say this? It's always good to pray, Lord, increase our faith. You need to pray for faith. It's a funny situation, but let me just say this. It takes faith to get faith. That's why it's given to every man the measure of faith. And He's given us the Word of God, whereby faith is produced in our life. It takes faith to get faith. And so what they're praying for is a noble thing. But then notice verse number 8. The Lord said, if ye had faith as a grain of mustard seed, ye might say unto this sycamine tree, be thou plucked up by the root, and be thou planted in the sea, and it should obey you. Notice number 2, the significance of their request. (laughs) This, You ever ask God a question and then regretted it? Sometimes I've asked God, Lord, show me where my weaknesses are. And it didn't take long. I started saying, all right, Lord, you can hide a few of them weaknesses. Lord, I didn't mean all of them, you know. They ask this question. They request, Lord, increase our faith. And the Lord replies back. And this is a cutting statement. It's said in love as everything the Lord ever said was. But it is a cutting statement. He says, if ye had faith as a grain of mustard seed. In other words, what he's saying is this. You're asking for faith for something that in your life you don't eat. Mm, How do I say this right? You're asking for faith. He's saying, I'm just asking you to follow. You're treating it like it is this monumental thing that I've asked you to do. And while certainly it's true it takes faith to serve God, can I say this? Most of us have not moved beyond the elementary status quo of the things that God has called us to do. I was thinking this morning about one of our missionaries, and I'll not share names, but a good brother, dear brother, getting it done. I'm talking about a modern day, uh, you know, uh, you know, Hudson Taylor, a modern day Adoniram Judson. But I, I was talking to him one time, and they made a statement. And though I agreed with the substance of the statement, I was struck by how tone deaf and naive it was. And I told my wife this morning, I said, you know, you need your missionaries to be just a little bit delusional. Because what they're doing for God is going to take a measure of faith beyond what most of us could ever comprehend. Man, they need to live a little pie in the sky because if they yield their life to a cynicism, they'll never amount to anything for God. You need your missionaries to be just a little bit half crazy because you'd have to be half crazy to do what they're doing. And I would say this, that most of us, the things that we're begging God for faith to do are not some great spectacular feats of spiritual performance, but most of us have not moved beyond even the basic status quo of what God expects out of His people. See, here's what it revealed. And certainly if we need faith, we ought to pray and ask for faith. But the Lord reveals to them that they were lacking faith in a major way in their life. The fact that they treated as fundamental a demand and requirement and commandment as the forgiveness of another, as some great spiritual feat demanding a supernatural dispensation of faith, did not reveal anything about the magnitude of the request, but about the minusculeness of their faith in the first place. 
He says, if you just had faith as a grain of mustard seed. He said, the problem is here. I've not asked you to say to a sycamine tree, be plucked up by the root and be thou planted in the sea. I've just asked you to forgive one another. When I read this passage, I see the substance of their request. I see the significance of their request. But then I think that betrays something that's worth noting, and that's the spirit of their request. It's interesting what the Lord says to them. He could have said, if you had faith as a grain of mustard seed, you might uh, win great souls to Christ and, and change the nation for the glory of God. But he didn't say that. He could have said, if you had faith as a grain of mustard seed, you might pull down spiritual strongholds and win great victories for me. But that's not what he said. Instead, he uh, he equates it with something that is almost as outlandish as it is unlikely. He says, you could say to this sycamine tree, be thou plucked up by the root and be thou planted in the sea, and it should obey you. Can I ask this question? I don't believe I'm being irreverent to God in asking it. And what good would it do? What good would it do? What would it have accomplished had they done that very thing? See, here's the reality of the question that they were asking. They were asking God for an increase in faith because they viewed His request as a monumental task. And in doing and performing that task, they viewed it not as the duty of a servant, but as the glory of a superhero Christian. Can I tell you, part of the reason we're unprofitable, and we'll define that word unprofitable here in a moment, but part of the reason we're unprofitable in our service to Christ is because we're not willing to view our service to Him as service in the first place. We rather view it as favor instead of faithfulness. And the fact is, what they wanted faith in doing and pursuing was not to the glory and honor of God because they had lost sight. They did not view themselves as servants, but rather as spectacles for whom praise should be heaped upon. He deals with what is possible, but he does so in an interesting way. And then in verse 7, he begins to deal with what is proper. Now, here we get to the heart of the Lord's message. He says, but which of you, having a servant plowing or feeding cattle, will say unto him by and by when he has come from the field, go and sit down to meet? He said, none of you would ask or expect that towards a servant. He says, you'd rather say unto him, make ready wherewith I may sup and gird thyself and serve me till I have eaten and drunken and afterward thou shalt eat and drink. Then he asked this question, doth he thank that servant? Because he did the things that were commanded him. He says, I trow not, I think not. He deals with what is possible in response to their question. But there was a problem with their perspective. So now he deals with what is proper in their relationship to the Lord. And notice that there's three things that he points to as being appropriate in the relationship between a master and a servant. Notice the first thing is this, that there should be service without reward. Can I tell you, we've spent so much time emphasizing the fact that a just God will reward us for our faithfulness. And by the way, let me pause and say this. A just God will reward us for our faithfulness. Listen, He's not unfaithful uh, to to ignore, to forget your, your works and your labor of love. He will recompense to you. So I'm not in any way saying He won't reward. I'm just saying this. He don't owe us a reward. Servant is not owed a thing. 
You see, you understand in this context, the servant is a man whose entire life and livelihood has been ceded, whether willingly or unwillingly, to the authority and ownership of the master. And how outlandish would it be for a servant to walk into the house and for the master to look at him and say, go prepare me something to eat, and him to say, aren't you appreciative of all I've been doing out there? Don't you know I deserve to sit down and eat first? Now, let me just take this to where you and I live. How many times do we look at the Lord and say, Now, Lord, I've been good to you. Why are you not allowing some blessing in my life? Mmm, my soul, that hurts me too. I didn't, I didn't know I was going to preach this. I wouldn't have preached this if I'd known it was going to hurt me and you. Like when you was growing up, your parents, they'd lie to you. They'd say, It's going to hurt me more than it's going to hurt you. That was a lie. I'm a parent. I know. I know. I... Mm, let me tell you, hey, listen, we've got this thing in our mind that if God doesn't heap upon our life blessing upon blessing, he has somehow been an unfair or an unjust God. Can I tell you something? You and I, man, if for nothing else, if we just went to heaven with our salvation, not a single temporal thing beyond it, we would have been blessed beyond measure. You and I, we are not owed anything by way of this sojourn in our life. And we have a gracious God and an abundant God and a glorious God that does bless us. But every blessing He heaps upon our life is done in grace. Not a single bit of it's done in repayment. Because the fact is, we're not even on proper ground to stand and demand payment. You didn't get hired into the family of God. You got born into the family of God. One of the things I learned growing up is when you're born into a family, you're born a servant. Some of y'all say amen to that. Some of y'all remember what it was to be a remote control. I was a coffee getter growing up. My parents invested in a remote control, but I was a coffee getter growing up. And it was always, Toby, hey, Toby, go heat me up a cup of coffee. And I knew. I knew exactly in the white with the teal striped cup on it. It took 30 seconds to get a cup of coffee up to where mom and dad liked it. I knew exactly how many. You know why? Because I had done it a blue million times. And if I had come into that room and said to them, what are you going to give me for it? I'd have got something. (laughs) And as soon as I got back up, I... (laughs) I guess I would have got something again. No, how unnatural that would have been. And, you know, we we say that tongue-in-cheek about our our children, but certainly they do occupy a state of servitude. That's appropriate. It's biblical. The Bible says that that's how a child was and is to be treated. So, hey, listen, some of the kids growing up in this world today, a lot of what's wrong with them is they never had to go get a cup of coffee. A lot of what's wrong with them is they were treated as equals standing on on common ground and they were viewed as employees instead of servants. I believe one of the things that would help, and certainly none of us should mistreat a child, and certainly none of us, I think, should treat them as, as something lesser than who and what they are, but certainly it's appropriate. The Bible says that a child, a son, until he comes to of an age, is of no difference from a servant. And in our life, I learned this, when you get born into the family, you get born in not just as a son, but as a servant too. Nowadays, I, I guess I get my parents a cup of coffee if they asked for one, but I don't get asked as often as I used to. Guess what? I've grown up. I've graduated out of it. But let me tell you this, in our life, when you got born into the family of God, you got born as a, as a servant. And as such, you and I, we're not owed anything. Now, I don't say that so that you might begrudge God. I say that so that you might bless God for all that He's given you above what you are owed because you are owed nothing except hell. I'd say service without 
reward. But then look at verse number 8. He says this, Will not rather say unto him, Make ready wherewith I may sup, and gird thyself, and serve me, till I have eaten and drunken, and afterward thou shalt eat and drink. The picture is of a servant, dog tired, been out in the field, man been plowing, uh, that has been uh, feeding cattle, that has been laboring, doing the work of the master. And were they to be on common footing, he could come in and say, why don't you serve me because you have not been working, I have been working. But as a servant, he has no right, listen now, to expect any relief until the master's needs have been met. Mm, Listen. Not only, what's proper? Service without reward. Number two, service without relief. Now, I, I, I hope you understand what I'm, I remember, I remember when I came here, uh, a long time ago, it feels like. Whenever it was, 12, 13 years ago. I remember, and the church had been through, through a traumatic experience, getting a pastor and stuff, and, but I remember hearing a, a, a person say to me one time, a church member say this, they're not here anymore. Uh, as far as I know, they're not anywhere anymore. But I, I remember hearing a church member say to me, said, Preacher, we've just been through so much, we just need to rest. And I was, I was a new pastor, I want to be compassionate. You know, I, sister, I understand that. I get that, I understand that. And then three months later, I come to him about something that needs to be done. Well, we just need to rest. We just need to rest. I just, I, I just, I, everything's just been, they're still resting 13 years later. What did the Lord Jesus say about relief and rest? He said, take my yoke upon you. Come to me, all ye that are weary and heavy laden. He says, I will give you rest. How does he do that? He says, take my yoke upon you. A yoke is an instrument of servanthood. And he says, take my yoke upon you. My, my burden is easy. My, my yoke is light. He says, through service I'll give you relief. But we have this notion that when we've been through some trauma that purchases to us some season of idleness or relief that God must give us. Can I tell you, listen, God's very gracious. He sees to the needs of His servants. And you don't have to worry about Him overworking. If He overworks, He'll undergird to help you get through it. But I'm just telling you this, this perspective of I have done my time, I have served my tenure, I have have, uh, done my deployment and I now no longer have to serve God. That Listen, that that may be the perspective uh, of, of someone that is laboring on a work. It's not the perspective of a servant. A servant says, I, I am not owed any relief. And oftentimes in our life, and I know this is true for me, I think this is the most natural human perspective to have, but I can bear a lot more when I can see an end in sight. You know why that is? I remember growing up as a child in school, and we had several breaks. We went to a private school, and so we, we had Christmas break. We didn't have winter break. We had Easter break. We didn't have spring break, you know. And, and, and But I remember I used to live my life counting the days down till the next break. That's how much I hated school. I did, man. I hated school. I didn't, I don't want to go back. I don't want to experience any part of it. I have no nostalgia about it. You know, I just, I hated school. And I, and I used to live my life just waiting for the next break to come. And that helped me bear through and get through. And, and I find that if I'm not careful, I'll begin to live my Christian life that way too. I'll begin to see myself as always living for quitting, living for relief, living for stepping away. But you know, the problem is, That is a tool and an instrument. That is an exercise of bearing your burdens in the flesh. To bear them in the new man and through the person and spirit of Christ is not to say, Lord, I have to get relief, but is to say, Lord, I have to get strength from you. What you need is not relief. What you need is relationship. 
And he points to the fact that part of servitude is service without reward. It's service without relief. But in verse 9 he says this, Doth he thank that servant because he did the things that were commanded him? He says, I trow not, I think not. I'd say this, what's proper in the relationship between a servant and a master? Service without reward, service without relief. But number three, it is service without regard. says the servant would not look at the master and say, why don't you ever brag on me? Why? Because he's a servant after all. It tells me this, that the absence or presence of praise, more particularly the absence, is not the metric through which the conduct and the service of the servant is measured in the first place. The master might never say good job, not because it's a bad job, but because he's a servant and he's not owed praise in the first place. Listen to me this morning. Hey, listen, you might never get the praise you think is owed to you. The problem is not that you're not getting the praise. The problem is none of us are owed it in the first place. Now, it's not to suggest that we should not be grateful for those that serve the Lord. It's not to suggest that we should not be gracious in, in acknowledging, and certainly that's true. But the problem with the disciples' perspective, they wanted to be bragged on for doing the very fundamental touchstone of Christianity, forgiving those that had wronged them. The Lord says, you don't need praise for that. You just need to be faithful in doing that. How often do we find this to be true? There's people that live for praise. There's people, and, and, and I will tell you this, living for praise is a weakness. It, when you live for praise, you are ceding the autonomy of your life to anybody that will give you a glad word. You're giving them a lever of manipulation to use in your life. It's part of the reason that autonomy, independence in, in life can only be achieved through dependence on the Lord. When His opinion is the only one that you ultimately care about, nobody can put a ring through your nose and lead you around. And that's why only through that is freedom truly found in your life. It's a dangerous thing to live with a necessity of praise in your life, but also it's an inappropriate thing to live towards God with that notion. The fact is, probably the greatest Christians that have ever lived, lived in total obscurity. Probably the greatest Christians that ever lived never breathed a word about the things that they've done for God. I don't begrudge you noticing what I do for the Lord or me noticing what you do for the Lord. I don't even begrudge you enjoying being noticed for doing something for the Lord. But I would say this, that your service for the Lord cannot, must not be contingent upon the praise that you receive from those around you. To do so is to lose sight and perspective of what it means to be a servant. So he deals with what is possible. Then he deals with what is proper. And then in verse 10... He introduces a new concept. He says, So likewise ye, when ye shall have done all those things which are commanded you. He's not talking about an unfaithful servant. He's talking about a faithful servant. He's not talking about someone that dropped the ball. He's not talking about someone that had a lapse. He's talking about someone that has done all those things which are commanded you. Can I say this? The very apex of Christianity in our perspective is a person that does all the things that are commanded of them. And, and, and I don't, listen, I, I don't want to get so heavenly minded. I'm of no earthly use. I recognize that men have always failed all throughout human history. I understand there's never been a time that men have lived in perfection other than the Lord Jesus walking this earth. He and He alone. But I will say that we have so lowered our standard of what Bible Christianity is. Man, we think we're superstars if we make it to three services a week. 
I mean, we do. We Listen, we think we deserve a gold star if we read through the Bible in a year. We think if we maintain praying to God for six days straight that somehow, listen, we've conquered the mountain Caleb conquered. We're missing the whole thing when we yield to that perspective. I hate the fact that nowadays they give everyone a trophy. Don't you hate that? I just hate that. I don't know if that's what's destroying society. But I wouldn't be surprised if I found out it was, you know. That's just so awful. You know why? Because it doesn't really give a trophy. It, in fact, cheapens the trophies that it it does have. This is something the socialists willingly are, are refusing to acknowledge. And, I mean, we see this all across the board. You print more money, you don't get more money. You make your money worth less money. <laughs> Very simple concept. In life, and, 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 you know, I just, I hate this society where everybody gets a trophy. Because what it really means is the trophies really weren't worth nothing in the first place. And that's why they'll, they'll give them to just anyone. They're not really meaningful in any way, shape, fashion, and form. And can I say, we live in a society that gives trophies for everything in Christianity. Listen, I, the, and, and our church is not like this, and I'm not, I'm not criticizing, maybe I am. But, but I'm not I'm not trying to be cynical about churches that do this. But man, you go into some churches, everything's got a plaque on it. Everything, plaque, plaque brother so and so here, plaque on the remembrance table for this. Every seat's got a plaque with somebody's name on it. Speaker's got a plaque on it. Here, here's here's Kleenex box. It was it was faithfully donated by sister so and so. And what does that speak about the the spirit and disposition of our age? That we are so drunken on acknowledgement and praise that we can't bear the thought of doing a thing for God without the world stopping to take notice. He says, so likewise ye, when ye shall have done all those things which are commanded of you. Not talking about the guys that get out. Not talking about Demas. Not talking about folks that get out of church and get all messed up. But I'm talking about the faithful ones. Here's what they should say. They should say, we are unprofitable servants. We've done that which was our duty to do. So the Lord talks about what's possible and what's proper, but finally, here's what He talks about. He talks about what's profitable. It's funny. Mankind cannot stop with this way of thinking. We somehow, and maybe we've just become fatalists. We've just become depressed and disheartened in society. But, you know, you look at most investments that are made in the world today, and if it just don't lose money, it's considered a winner. You understand, I mean, inflation at the rate that it is, having our money in the banks, we're losing money doing that, right? And, and, and the whole, the whole investing industry, I mean, the notion of making great sweeping gains is completely gone in society today. Now, here's what most people hope for. Some kind of fund that can keep their 401k consistent with inflation so that they're not losing money. That's the successful thing. The successful thing is at least I'm not drowning. Amen? And, you know, we've adopted this same philosophy about Christianity where we look at it and say, if I'm not getting messed up on drugs, marriage busted up, out of church, I'm some kind of superstar. But what at the end of the day is profitable if it's not beyond the initial investment in the first place? You see, here's the problem. It wasn't that they weren't serving God. It wasn't that they weren't serving Him faithfully. It's that they had lost sight of what was possible in their serving God 
And they had lost sight of what was their responsibility as a servant. What is a profitable servant? Well, if a servant was bought for a particular task or enlisted for a particular task, and they performed that task, we could not call that servant profitable. Here's all they're doing. They're doing that which they were purchased or hired to do. But for a servant to be profitable, they would have to go above and beyond what is the status quo and even above and beyond what is expected and asked of them in the first place. Can I tell you this? Our Christianity ain't even in the black if all we're doing is going to church, reading the Bible, and praying. It's not. If we're not stepping and making strides in faith to yield to God greater portions of our life and seek Him to do amazing things through it, how dare we call ourselves profitable? I, I'm talking about this preacher this morning. I guess it might hit you, but I know it's hitting me. I'm talking about in our life we somehow have yielded to this fatalist and puny notion that doing that which is commanded of us is the apex, is the pinnacle of Christianity. What would it take for a servant to be profitable? Or what could a servant do beyond what they were hired or purchased to do. Well, I thought about three things. I'll mention them and be done. I would say a profitable servant is a servant who is abundant in the honor that he renders. You know, the basic baseline expectation of a servant is that they behave, that they bring no shame or dishonor to their master. I think about some of the things that I've done on job sites, man. <laughs> And I think to myself, it's a wonder they didn't fire me long before they did. Amen. Some of the fool things that I've done and, and you know, a lot of times they could have just fired me for bad behavior. Amen. And, you know, in Christianity, we somehow get this notion and perspective that we have achieved some pinnacle of Christianity if we can manage to not get messed up, gnarled up and out in sin. Can I tell you, God deserves more than just our obedience. He deserves our obedience. Oh, yes. But He deserves more than our obedience. He deserves, in fact, that we live in such a way that men might behold our good works and glorify our Father in heaven. It ought to be that when men look at our life, they don't just see that we're not an embarrassment for God, but that they see in us a shining light of the power and display of God's grace and God's mercy. It ought to be that they don't just see that we're not in the bar. They don't just see that we're not with a needle in our arm. They don't just see that we're not down at the club. But they look at our life and see in us a shining light, an example of what is possible for their life if they'll simply give their heart to Christ. I'd say a, a profitable servant, he's abundant in the honor that he renders. I wonder if men have a better opinion about God after they've seen your life than they had before. I didn't just say if they have the same opinion, do they have a better opinion about God? I would say, number two, a servant that's profitable, not only is he abundant in the honor he renders, but number two, he's efficient in the time he redeems. One of the things you'll hear uh, this terminology a lot today, if you read media, if you read news articles, anything like that, they'll use this term, They'll call it's called a life hack. You ever heard that term before? Oh, you ain't that old. Come on. You've All right. A life hack is some efficient way of doing something. It might be how you get dressed in the morning. It might be how you do your dishes. It might be how you organize your home. 
But it's some way using the play on the notion of hack, of hacking into a computer, finding a shortcut, of finding some shortcut in life that makes your operations, movement, and activities in the day more efficient than they otherwise would be. And there's a lot of emphasis in society today on capitalizing on time as a commodity. A lot of that is because they don't want us to know that privacy is also a commodity and they're trying to distract us from that. But irrespective of that, there is a lot of emphasis placed on how we use our time in these days. I would say this, a servant is not a profitable servant if he only spends all of his time serving the master. In fact, he is commanded to spend all of his time serving the master. The servant is a profitable servant if he maximizes on the time in service to the master in the first place. I wonder how efficient we are in serving God. I wonder if we actively work to make our life more efficient in using our life for his glory and for his honor. Are you with me this morning? I and even if this was a different message, I'd just be kicking into third gear. We'd just be getting to point one and a half. I'm almost done. You stay with me this morning. I'll get you to Shoney's. Don't worry. But how often in our life do we view ourselves, if we just simply render to God the time that we socially, societally have considered to be hallowed unto Him, we view that as being some great use of God. You understand time's a precious commodity. It's going, it's slipping away, it's slipping away all the time. I, 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 listen, young people, young parents, young families, man, I want you to hear this. This time is going to be gone before you know it. The time you think you don't feel good now, you're going to find out how bad you feel later. And all the old people said, man, this time with your kids when they're little and they'll listen to you at least somewhat moderately, it's going to be gone. And I'm saying this, a profitable servant, he doesn't just yield his time to God. He seeks to maximize that time in a way that produces the most for God. Can I say this to the... We ain't got no old people in our church. Can I say this to the aged crowd? Can I say to you, there's certain things you can do now that you couldn't do 20 years ago. I know you spend all your time focusing on what you could do 20 years ago that you can't do today. But there are some things that you can do today that you couldn't do 20 years ago. There's some things in your... I know it feels... I, I hear all the retired people always say, well, I retired. I'm busier now than I ever was before. A lot of that is just if when you move slower, it takes longer to do the things that you used to do, and it feels like there's less time. Hey, am I become your enemy because I tell you the truth? You know, you know that's true. Hey man, you, you can, you can really invest in the matter of prayer in these, in these days. You can be an influence and a witness to others. Not everybody can. There's a lot of people that on fixed incomes and on fixer incomes by the day. But some of you have been blessed to have some liberty in that area that you didn't have 20 years ago. And I'm saying this, whatever season of life you're in, you know what you should be saying as a servant of God? How can I most efficiently redeem the time in what I'm investing in? And then I would say this, a profitable servant is is extravagant in the return that his master receives. That's really what it fundamentally comes down to, isn't it? That they give the master back more than what he invested in them. Now, before you say, oh, preacher, we can never pay back. I know we can never pay back the debt. But here's what I would say. We ought to be better than how he found us. We ought to be better than what he purchased. 
You see, when the master purchased a slave, he purchased him in a certain condition and had certain expectations out of him in light of that condition that he was in. And whenever he bought you, you was in a certain condition. And what a disgrace it would be to wind up going to heaven in the same or worse condition than God found us in. How, how sad it is that we'll often look back to the infant days of our walk with God, when we were just born again, and we will look back with fond nostalgia how those were the days we were the most devoted to God. What a disgrace that is. We should love Him more today than we loved Him then. We should serve Him more today than we served Him then. We should give to Him more than we gave to Him then. We should be more today than we were then. Otherwise, here's what we are. We're just we're unprofitable servants. I didn't say you disobedient servants. I said often we're unprofitable servants. So I wonder if we'd be willing to take a real honest look at our life this morning and ask ourselves, is he getting a good return on our life? Let's bow together this morning as a musician comes to play, the altar's open. And I invite you to come and meet God in the altar. Whatever he dealt with you about, talked to you about, would you meet him down here and let him have his will and way in your life? Hey, these servants, they did everything that was commanded of them. And then if they were honest, they had to say we're unprofitable servants. What about us? Do we move beyond duty into the realm of devotion? Father, bless this invitation. May it magnify the Lord Jesus. We ask it in his name.